Thanks for joining the Capital Church podcast channel. For more resources and to learn more about Capital Church, please visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info at capitalchurch.co. Um, hey, so I'm going to quickly get into the message today. My text here is Mark chapter 4, 35 through 41. I just want to share just a few thoughts with you this morning about miracles. So I'm just, I'm just not going to... I was going to get into it, but we're going to be talking about miracles. How many of you believe in miracles? Right? Uh, I, I want to I answer the question, okay, what, it, what are miracles to, to a certain extent? Just because of time, uh, I, mean, I know you want me to preach for four hours because this is like a four-hour message, but I don't have time. I got a few minutes to talk about miracles, but in this kind of short talk on miracles, I want to talk about what are miracles and what our, what our response as a church should be to miracles. Should, should we be a church that, in, as we seek to build for the kingdom of Jesus, should we be a church that believes that we are miraculous people? Should people come into the service and should they experience miracles? Should we live our days, right, really believing that God is um, in charge of every aspect of our lives? Right? And that God can do whatever he wants to do. How many, how many believers do we have here today? Right? Do you believe that? So um, we're going to be talking about miracles today. I, I've, I've talked a lot at length about this. I'm going to take some snippets from um, talks. It's kind of a composite message. I'm putting it together. Um, uh, but ultimately, we're going to pray together as a community at the end of this talk. And we're going to believe that this season that we're in, as a community, not just for us, but for all the other local churches in this valley, it's going to be a season of miracles. It's going to, see, it's going to be a season of breakthrough in your life um, as you seek to build for his kingdom. Remember, it's not about you or I, right? It's about what God wants to do through us for the sake of people in this city, right? So Mark chapter 4, 35 through 41, here we have, um, a re- let's be honest, okay? Kind of a strange story. I've heard so many different messages um, on this passage, and I think, and I preach on this so many times before, and I think most messages miss the point, right? I think we talk about secondary things, which are good things, but I think most messages when it comes to Mark chapter 4 kind of misses the point. I don't mean to be arrogant, like, oh, I got the inside scoop, right? I just think that um, this brings clarity to what we're talking about today in relationship to miracles. So verse 35, on that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. Jesus is on mission. He's with his his disciples. Verse 36, and leaving the crowd, they took with him, um, or they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. Verse 37, and then a great windstorm arose. So this Mediterranean storm. And the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. How many of you like naps? Okay. Jesus is asleep on the cushion. Like I've heard a lot of different messages. I've actually kind of thematically talked about Jesus sleeps so we can wake up, right? And I think that's great. Like some of us don't even know what that means, right? Um, But that's not the point of this story. Um, and we're going to get to the point here really quick. And they woke him. Everyone say, woke him. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? 
And he awoke. And, and I, I, man, I just love the, the phraseology here. Mark is trying to make a, a, a pretty big point about miracles and the relationship between miracles and the, coming, the inauguration of the kingdom of Jesus. And he writes, Jesus didn't speak to the wind. What did he do? He rebuked the wind. I want you to remember, he rebuked the wind. Why would he rebuke the wind, right? And then he said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Verse 40, and then he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Jesus most likely invented little faiths. This is essentially what he's telling his disciples. You have little faiths. And then he moves, and we move into verse 41. And they were filled, the disciples were filled with great fear. How many of you would probably say, yeah, I'd probably be the same way, right? And said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea, the wind and the sea obey him? Can I get an amen? Let's go to 1 Corinthians. Uh, This will be our last passage, verse 14. And if we can get to verse 1, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1, perfect. So Paul is writing about um, the priority of love within this um, community. And he's addressing a lot of different issues, which we'll get to here pretty quick. But in verse 1, we transition out of that lyrical depth of a poem that we find in 1 Corinthians 13, that above all things, it's faith, hope, and love. So then we, we transition into verse 1, and it says, Paul writes, I want you to pursue love, right? I want you to pursue self-giving love as a way of life. Can you get an amen to that? And then he says, and earnestly, we're going to explore that word earnestly, and I've, I've talked about this before, but earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. All right, I want you to bow your heads, close your eyes as we pray. Father, I thank you for uh, your presence this morning. Lord, we just, we just, we tell you right now, we're ready. We're ready for whatever you want to do in this moment. Lord, I just thank you for your grace. Thank you for your wisdom. Oh, we just thank you for your authority in Jesus' name. Come and do what you want to do in our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. So we're going to be talking about miracles today. I want you to think about that as I kind of take you through just a little journey on miracles. Um, but I also want you to be thinking about, okay, what kind of church should we be, right? Should we, should, should we um, and this is just kind of a side note, but should we just be a church filled with programs, good programs? I think good programs are good. I think what we do with kids ministry is great. Um, I think we have a really good first impression team. Like I, we get from a lot of new people that when they come to our church for the first time that they really feel loved and we want that, right? Uh, we have systems, we have programs as a community and those are absolutely essential. But should we just be a church of programs or should we also be a church that's defined and shaped by the presence of Jesus? right? So I I just want you to be thinking about this, because what kind of church, I want you to think about this, should we be for the sake of the world? Um, I'm going to go back to this topic on miracles. So 
as we're talking about miracles, think about what kind of church should we be. A couple of weeks ago, I think Pastor Ken mentioned this last week, that there was um, a Christian worship leader who uh, on Twitter came out renouncing his faith. And I, I want to take you to his Twitter account, and I just want to read this to you. I don't want you to get mad at him. I don't want you to tweet him. I don't want you to DM him if you know him. I don't want you to, Christians say the darndest things, right? So please don't get angry and, you know, get your whatever, your anger or your rage on and start talking about this guy. We love him. Can I get an amen to that? So this isn't to any way, this, I'm bringing him out not to throw him under the bus. I just want to give you a picture of how I think a lot of people think like him. And this is what he said. This is a soapbox on his Twitter account as he was renouncing his faith. This is a soapbox moment, so here I go. He goes, how many preachers fall? right? Many, he answers his question. But then he goes on to say, no one talks about it. He then continues, how many miracles happen? And this is an ostentious claim here, not many. I'd be like, oh, I remember reading that. I'm like, okay, that's fine. That's fair game, right? Love you. I ain't going to be the pitchfork guy on the Twitter going after you. But not many was his words. And then this is what he says, not many people talk about it. So I remember thinking about that for some time over the last few weeks, and I'm like, God, I feel like that's a challenge for our church. I I want to read that again. I want you to think about this. This is um, a former Christian worship leader who we love said, how many miracles happen? In his words, not many. No one talks about how there are not many miracles miracles that happen in our lives. How many believe in miracles? Let me get just, just a show of hands before I get into like this little brief talk. How many of you have experienced a miracle? Okay, look, at, I want you, everyone look around. Look at this. Look, look. I don't know why I'm talking like this. Look at this. We all have experienced a miracle. Well, David Hume, Uh, famous Scottish philosopher, he said miracles, he actually ruled out miracles a priori, and he's really the father of American culture with Thomas Jefferson, I'll get to him really quick, but David Hume basically said that miracles do not happen because they cannot happen. Basically, that um, is a byproduct, that statement is a byproduct of how how he views the cosmos. Uh, basically, we live in a closed system. We live in a one-story universe. That's kind of fancy talk for saying that we rule out metaphysics. God does not exist, therefore miracles cannot happen. I've talked about this many times before, but this shapes um, American disenchantment. And um, American disenchantment basically is this cynicism, and it's growing as it relates to miracles, as it relates to metaphysics, as it relates to even the existence of God. Thomas Jefferson, I would even make the argument, is the father of American disenchantment. And this is what he said, or this is actually what he did famously. He took his Bible. How many of you believe in your Bibles? Again, many of you have heard me talk about this before, but he took his Bible and he, he, he um, excised everything from metaphysics to miracles out of his Bible. So he redacted it. So he took the sayings of Jesus, right, the Sermon on the Mount, and he kept that because it's ethical, but that's good because we want to love people. And then he took any reference to the divinity of Jesus, removed it from his Bible, any reference to healings or miracles, he um, uh, redacted it out of his um, Bible. Uh, He's famous for being an Epicurean. And as an Epicurean, we've talked about this before, he believed in a split-level worldview, right? 
So there's an upstairs, downstairs way of seeing our universe. The upstairs is where God, the angels, all kind of exist, and they exist way out there, if indeed they exist. We, as humans, live on planet Earth, and we kind of do whatever we want to do. There's a great, like, barrier between us and this kind of dimension, if you want to call it a dimension. And Americans have gone along for um, the ride, right? Or they've embraced kind of this idea that God is altogether separate, or miracles are altogether separate, or healing is altogether separate from our lives. As I mentioned, Thomas Jefferson uh, is the father of American disenchantment. Many people are cynical when it comes to um, miracles and whether God can actually heal us. Um, just so you know, the separation of church and state, secular and sacred, um, God and the world, God and miracles, you could trace the etymology all the way back to Thomas Jefferson and this Epicurean way of seeing the world, right? Unfortunately, the church, and I feel it at times, the church has embraced this vision of the world, right? Like we come on Sundays and we believe that God is there, but for whatever reason, God is altogether separate from our daily lives Monday through Saturday, right? You know, God takes a break on Saturday because we all want to watch college football. We get it, you know, we chill. Um, but the rest of Monday through Friday, that's given over to the devil. It's given over to laissez-faire economics. It's given over to the powers, the cosmic powers, whatever. God is in charge maybe for two hours on Sunday, right? I don't know if we intellectually think that, but we live our lives as if that is true. But the Bible makes it very clear that Jesus, in Revelation chapter nine, uh, 19, verse 6, he is the King of kings and he is the Lord of lords. Philippians chapter 2 gives us a picture of, of Jesus' global sovereignty. And, and, and Paul makes it very clear that Jesus is the King, he is the Lord, and every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is in charge of all things. So as followers of Jesus, we believe that Jesus is in charge of Wednesday just as much as he's in charge on Sunday. And he's in charge, yes, of, of your soul, if that's what you want to call it, but he's also in charge of your body Tuesday morning when you're going to the doctor. God is not constricted to some split-level uh, construct or way of seeing the universe. Got to get an amen to that. So here's the thing. St. Augustine, uh, a long time ago, believed uh, just like Thomas Jefferson and believed uh, in accordance with this uh, worship leader um, when he renounced his faith. St. Augustine, as a follower of Jesus, believed that miracles did not happen in his day. And then he switched as they were taking records, this is what he said. Didn't believe in miracles until he did believe in miracles. And he wrote um, that it's been two years that keeping of the records has begun here in Hippo. These are his words. And already, right, already at this writing, we have nearly 70 attested miracles. We have Quadratus in AD 125. I love that guy's name. Someone should name their baby Quadratus, right? Call him quad, right? Just go lift out, just build his quads, right? CrossFit, all right. <laughs> Quadratus, I just love this. Think about this. In AD 125, said that he even knew people that were healed by Jesus. Woo! 
That's good stuff. He knew people that were healed by Jesus. We go to the patristic period, we go to Irenaeus, we go to Origen, we go to a lot of different patristic fathers. They all claim that the healing power of Jesus was still at work in their lives. In fact, my mom, I've mentioned this story before, she was 20. We're living in Portland. I probably was about four. Dad, you can maybe correct the details. My sister Rochelle was probably one and a half. Maybe Trace was, was maybe just recently born. She went to the doctor. She was having trouble with her vision. She went to the doctor, and the doctor looked at her eyes and said, um, it will happen soon, but there will be a point where, where you will no longer be able to see. Is that true, Dad? You won't be able to see. And I think in his words, your kids grow up, and there's nothing we can do. Your eye condition is irreversible. You will lose your sight. So she prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. I think it was a Sunday night, Sunday morning. I'll get the details right. But Sunday morning, she goes to a church service. No one was praying for healing. My mom is desperate. She's in her early 20s, like 25, right? Just got the worst news you could get. You're not going to be able to ever see your kids grow up, right? You're never going to be able to see this redhead, like, run like the, like the wind, right? Turn into this incredible, handsome athlete, all right? Um, in the middle of this worship service, she's praying. A guy named Mike Heron, he's playing the piano. I can't remember what happened. But he's playing, he starts to sing, and in that moment, my mom could sense that something was different with her eyeball. Healed in that moment. And she still sees today. In fact, in fact, her eye doctor used to a lot send her to other eye doctors to check out her eyeball because scientifically right now or physiologically, she should not be able to see right now, but she can. And they don't have an answer to it. So, hey, yes, we do. They don't. We do. Thank you for correcting me. We got some theologians on the front row. Do we believe in miracles? Second service a couple weeks ago, Ellen, I love Ellen. How many of you know Ellen Ott? Same thing, in the middle of a worship service, I can't remember if it was her back or whatever, I'm just bad with details, might have been her shoulder. She's worshiping, no one's praying for healing, but at the end of the service, she gets healed. What kind of church should we be? Just a church of programs? Yeah, I think we should be a church of programs, right? I think we need to have the best programs and do everything with excellence, right? for the sake of our city. But I think we should be a people defined by the presence of Jesus and the power of miracles. Amen. So, we come to this story in um, Mark chapter 4. Thomas Jefferson, just to remind you, believed that you could separate Christianity from miracles. My argument is you can't. If you try to take the miraculous out of the Christian story, you are left with something unchristian. That's a strong argument. You might not like me for saying that, but I, I, I just believe that's what you find in the New Testament. What's interesting is, and let me just give you some facts. How many like some facts? When you go to the synoptic tradition, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and you look at the synoptic gospels, almost, this is statistically significant, almost 40% of the gospels are healing stories. 
One pastor um, makes a claim. This, I didn't research this, but I got this from one pastor. When you go to the book of Acts, 12 of the 28 chapters, again, statistically significant, 12 of the 28 chapters address healing. There are 14 stories of healing in the book of Acts. You separate healing, you separate miracles from the Christian story. I think you lose Christianity. So what's going on with Mark chapter 4? Is Jesus like taking a nap because he, because he wants to prove his divinity, right? By allowing a Mediterranean storm, you know, to hit them and their boat and then wake up and like, like you know, take authority over it? What's going on with this story? Is this story just about how we metaphorically can get through the winds of life or the difficulties of, in life? That's a secondary thing, and that can certainly mean that, but that's not primarily what this story is about. What is this story about? This story is not about how Jesus, through his miraculous display of power, tells us that he's divine, and we know Jesus is divine. The point of the story is that through this miracle, as Jesus takes authority over the storm, is making the point that God now is claiming sovereignty over all of creation. In fact, I'm just going to make the case, right, Genesis chapter 1. Whose world is this? Is it yours? Is it the Republicans? Is it the Democrats? Is it it laissez-faire economics? Is Is it Europe's? Right? Who stakes the claim on creation? Right? Well, Genesis chapter 1 tells us that in the beginning, God, not America, not Europe, not Africa, not Asia, not China, God, what claims sovereignty? In the beginning, God created the heavens, right, and the universe. Then we fast forward to Psalm in the middle of the Old Testament storied world. Psalm 24, what does it say? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. We find all these beautiful passages of the future in Habakkuk chapter 2 and Isaiah chapter 11 that one day because creation is seen in the world of the Bible as a temple that God wants to flood creation with his presence and you have these beautiful passages Habakkuk chapter 2 as the waters cover the sea so God wants to flood creation with his healing presence and glory. So we're just making the case first in the words of one scholar that this material world, matter itself matters. Miracles tell us that Jesus is the king. He's inaugurating the kingdom of God and that God through Jesus and his public ministry and as he rebukes the storm is staking claim and rights over creation itself. That's what miracles are way more than that, but that at the bottom of it is what miracles are all about. Jesus, let me say this again. I want you to get this. Miracles are about Jesus staking claim on what is his. In other words, Christianity does not leave create a leave creation story. It's about God taking back the land story. It's about God taking back relationship story. It's about God taking back our body story. Can I get an amen to that? It's about God taking back our, our divided, hostile world by his love, through his death, through his resurrection, and through his ascension, Jesus is now taking back 
what was lost in Genesis chapter 3 through Adam and Eve and through their rebellion. So the physical world and all of its complexity, right, from all the good stuff, the ugly stuff, even suffering itself, right, is subsumed under the authority and the ownership of, of God. And as Jesus arrives on the scene, think about all these different stories. He heals the sick. He takes five loaves and two fish, and he transforms it, and he feeds the thousands, right? Are these just proofs that Jesus is really, really, really powerful? No. Of course we know that Jesus is all-powerful, and he submitted his power to his Father, but these stories are making a claim that God has come back, and he is renewing all things. Amen. Do you guys believe that? So if you take miracles, it's just a strong argument. You take miracles, or you don't believe in miracles, or you try to separate your following Jesus from the spirituals, which we'll talk about, or the miraculous, or belief in healing, I believe you're actually undercutting that Jesus is in fact not just the king of heaven, but he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords of all. So that's the shortest little dissertation on anything I've ever done. I am really impressed with myself, guys. I'm like, I actually did it because I could have gotten so much longer. Okay, so, 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 so. Why? Why is it that on one level, we as Christians don't experience, I mean, more miracles, right? It's, it's obvious. Almost everyone raised their hand this morning when I asked the question, Do you, have you experienced a miracle, right? So in one sense, we all have experienced um, miracles, right? I think as the church, we probably need to do a better job of celebrating those miracles. Well, we need to hear those stories. Do you think that's right, Pastor Ken? I think we need to do a better job of recording all those miracles that are happening, right? Um, but I do think in one sense, if we're just like, let's just scale it up to a macro level. When you look at the church in the Western world, because of the cultural climate that we live in and just this deep cynicism, miracles are dormant in the church. So this is kind of a weird paradox. I think a lot of people do. Followers of Jesus experience miracles. And, it's, and, when, and when, when I mean miracles, I'm not just talking about the Dallas Cowboys winning today, right? That will be a miracle. But I'm talking about God healing your body, God doing something so miraculously. You prayed for God. There was no way you're going to get out of this financial crisis. And bam, God did something, right? And you have no other explanation, right, other than, other than that God has done that. That's by definition a miracle, which again is connected, it's tethered to what we talked about before, that miracles are a sign that Jesus is taking back um, creation. So then why is it that um, a lot of people, let's just say, um, that Mar uh, this, I won't name this, I almost named him, this worship leader is right. Where are all the miracles? Let's just say that on one level those miracles are dormant. Why? If we believe that God is taking back the land. We believe that Jesus decisively defeated the powers. And we believe Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Why then are miracles sometimes dormant, right? Inactive, right? 
Dormant comes from a Latin word meaning he sleeps. Why, are, why don't we experience more of that in our lives? I think I have the answer, and I'm going to get into it really quick. It's found in 1 Corinthians 14. I'm going to give you a, a composite picture. 1 Corinthians 14, Paul gives an imperative. He says, pursue love. How many think that's a good thing? Pursue love, right? We don't pursue um, the love of power, right? Paul's making the case for about five or six chapters that the love of power corrupts, the love of knowledge corrupts. It's the power of self-giving love that, that is transformative, right? So we are called to love each other, and Paul is prioritizing that in five-ish, six chapters. In other words, we are not measured by our power. We're not measured by our knowledge. We are measured by how we love each other. If we don't get that, then we can't move into the, into the miraculous. I honestly believe that. So Paul gives us a sequence, pursue love, right? And then be eager for the gifts. So let me give you this composite picture. Are you guys with me? Of the church in Corinth. Really, so this, I love Paul because he's really sarcastic, right? He's the guy that can be sarcastic, kind of make fun, kind of tease, and make you feel better about yourself, right? So he affectionately calls these new apostles super apostles. They're not super apostles, but he's kind of playing with them, kind of teasing with this church in Corinth, which he founded. It's probably several, uh, excuse me, maybe 40 or 50 people in this church, maybe a little bit more as he wrote this letter to the church in Corinth. Well, these apostles, these new guys, come along the scene, and they're trying to circumvent Paul's authority. And one of the things that they're doing is they're creating this, let's call it a hierarchical snobbery kind of thing. So essentially, they're saying that there are some people in the body of Christ in this little church in Corinth that are superior to other people because of their experience of the Spirit, right? So um, this is why Paul is emphasizing love as the way, not power or knowledge, right? Because these super apostles are pitting each other against each other. Um, they're dividing up the body. Um, this is proto-Gnostic, this is fancy talk, proto-Gnostic kind of exclusive. If you have tongues or if you have this extraordinary spiritual experience, you must be like more in tune with Jesus than others. The problem is that there were a lot of people that weren't experiencing some of these ecstatic experiences that these other super apostles were experiencing. So Paul comes along and in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says that Jesus is Lord, right? And then he says that it's Jesus who gives the gifts, right? The God our Father gives the gifts of wisdom, power, all these spiritual gifts that he lists out, not exhaustively, but lists out in 1 Corinthians 12. He then moves into the lyrical poem of 1 Corinthians 13 on love. And then we come to 1 Corinthians 14. He says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. I've talked about this before, but spiritual gifts is probably a bad translation. Spiritual gifts should be translated spirituals, or in the words of Gary Brashears, the things or the stuff that the Spirit of God does. Spiritual gifts implies a hierarchy, right? That there's some people that have it, and that some people don't have the Spirit. Paul makes very clear in 1 Corinthians 12, I love it, verse 13, that we are all baptized. How many of you are followers of Jesus? Come on, we're all baptized, if we're in Christ, into one body, right? And we were made to drink of the Spirit, all of us. 
Whether slave or free, right, it doesn't matter. Everything is leveled at the foot of the cross, and all the stuff that the Spirit of God does is made available to not just a few select group of Christians, but for all Christians. So all, unless you're an Oakland Raider fan, but all were made to drink. I'm sorry about A.B. All were made to drink of the Spirit. And then he says, and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. So we have this composite picture. Like I'm taking a lot of different pieces, putting it all together. I think the reason why in verse 1, Paul is saying, obviously pursue love, because there's a love problem in the church in Corinth. And that's why they got a miracle problem. But then as he, he makes the case that we got to pursue love, if we pursue love, that's going to lead to earnestly desiring not gifts, but the stuff that the Spirit of God does, the miraculous life. I think the reason why Paul is saying that, because a lot of people were not expecting, they were not eager for the stuff that the Spirit of God did because they were taught that only a few people, right, could walk in the spirituals or experience the spirituals. But Paul uses this evocative word. I want you to be eager. Everyone say eager. Eager is derived from several different Greek words. It's a little bit confusing, but if you trace it, it's derived from this powerful um, picture of, think of a boiling water. Think of water boiling over um, a pot. Or think of like hot lava, right? Paul wants us to be like that when it comes to the miraculous life or the stuff that only the Spirit of God can do in our life. We are supposed to be like hot lava for the miraculous. So what does that mean? Well, I think, I think, just to bring this all home now, I think that to be eager, and this fits with Hebrews chapter 11, that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Without faith, we cannot please him, right? So I think what Paul is, is saying is we have to develop, if you want to enter into the miraculous, and get out of this kind of inactive relationship with miracles, right? You have to develop a high expectation for it. You have to develop a high expectation for it. Expectation in the kingdom of God and in life itself matters. How many of you believe that? Right? And I'm not talking about a name it, claim it kind of theology, right? A reductionistic theology. Expectation alters or affects the structure of our relationships, For example, and I've mentioned this before, 20 years ago I went to Sonic, two different occasions, got their chili cheese dog, right, expecting that I would have a great experience with it. I'm not joking. Twice in a matter of months, I I was, I don't know why I did this, but twice I got food poisoning from Sonic. Now, if you work at Sonic, we love you. I'm sure management has changed or whatever. And for days, I won't get into the graphic details of what happened in my body, but I thought I was dying. I literally thought I was dying. I had to, anyways, it's a long story. So guess what? I have a different expectation. So much so, I don't go to Sonic. It affected the fundamental nature of my, my expectation now affects the fundamental nature of my relationship with Sonic, right? <laughs> Expectations matter. If you believe people are going to be consistent, you're going to, 
you're going to be more prone to be close to them. Like, I love Shake Shack. Have you ever been to Shake Shack? If you've never been to Shake Shack, there's something wrong with you, right? But Shake Shack has the greatest cheeseburger that you've ever had in your life. And every time I go to Shake Shack, it's the same beautiful experience, right? So my relationship with Shake Shack is open. If they were here, I would probably gain 50 pounds, right? Because I would go there every single day. So what am I trying to say? Expectations can alter the structure of your relationship with anything. When it comes to God, if it's not just, hey, when God says in Hebrews chapter 11, I want you to have faith in me, right? And that pleases God. God's not just giving you an arbitrary rule. Oh, you got to believe in me I, because if you don't believe in me, I'm going to be offended. No, God is saying the reason why I want you to believe in me because when you have expectation, right? Expectation, again, this is how God has designed us, draws us closer to something. If you don't have high expectation, that creates, again, it alters the structure of your relationship with anything. It creates distance vis-a-vis in your relationship with God. It creates distance from God himself. So high expectation isn't just, okay, I'm going to name and claim this because this is how the world works. No. Expectation works to bring you into relationship with God or to take you out of relationship with God. Are you hearing me? This morning. So I think this composite picture that I've kind of given you today makes the case that if it's true that the spirituals or the miraculous life is dormant or inactive in our life, it could be that the cause is that your levels of expectation is not where it should be. And the reason behind that is because maybe you're not as close to God as you should be. So let me just say this really quick. Three reasons why we don't expect. Number one, it's because we misunderstand who God is and his generosity. I'll say a, tra- a lot of people carry around these tragic misunderstanding, understandings or visions or views, whatever you want to call it, of who God is and his generosity. Case in point, this Jeffersonian world that we live in, this disenchanted age where we believe God is not a part of our daily lives. Remember, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says that if you are in Christ, you are baptized in one body and you are made to drink. I love the language. Not sip, right? But drink of the Spirit. One desert father, I believe, said this, Lord, I crawled across the, the barrenness and the wilderness to you with my empty cup. If I had only known you better, I would have come running with a bucket. We come on Sundays with cups. God, can you just give me a little bit? When God's saying, no, 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 stop. Stop it. You need to come with buckets of expectation. Believing that, yes, I am a blesser. I am a healer. And I am, am I screaming too loud for you? I am your healer, and I want to be with you. And not just on Sundays, but Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, even though college football's going on, right? So number one, I think that's why we don't expect a lot. And I get it. There's no judgment here. Maybe it's because of your past. Maybe you've gone through different things, and you've developed a, a profound misunderstanding of who God is. Number two, 
I just think this might even be the bigger one. It's kind of a 50-50 when it comes to the first one that we talked about when it comes to expectation. But I think many of us are just simply distracted. We're pathologically busy. And we don't have any time for God. In fact, one scholar said we live in a world fraught with weapons of mass distraction. Right? Corey Tenboon said this. I love it. One of my favorite quotes. If the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. Right? Man, he'll like that Netflix show. Man, I, man, binging Netflix every now and then is great. But binging it all the time, that's a recipe for depression, right? But we got so much from entertainment. I think uh, Pastor Ken talked about our entertainment culture. Again, entertainment, there's nothing necessarily wrong with it. We love entertainment. Go to a movie, go on a date night if you're married, do all that kind of stuff. That's great. We're not saying anything wrong with that. But we don't live by that. And there are many people just busy with a lot of good things. And because we're busy, we don't take time to hear what God is saying to us. So we come into a Sunday morning or we come into a week or we come into a season with low expectations. Maybe because we have a wrong misunderstanding of who God is. Maybe because we're just simply distracted with good things. The last one, this is a big one probably for all of us. This is something that I'm really working through in my own life, to be really honest with you, is not that I'm a disobedient guy, but I really, as, as your lead pastor, I have a responsibility to set the example for this church. So when the Holy Spirit speaks to me, oh, have mercy this week, God, I know that I have to step out in faith. Even if I can't rationalize the, what the voice of God is saying to me, right? So I think one of the biggest problems that we have when it comes to expectations, the reason why we don't have a high expectation is because we're just disobedient. We don't obey God's voice when he tells us to step out. Right? In, in our American culture, I don't want to do a lot of cultural anthropology this morning, but we value our highest goods, our results, and productivity. Right? You're, you're measured. We're measured by results and productivity. They're our highest goods in our modern contemporary life. But when we come to Scripture, what is the highest end or good? It's faithful obedience. Jesus said and commends the servant by being faithful. And he says, well done, good, and faithful. Not result-oriented, productive servant, but good and faithful servant. And I think when it comes to hearing the voice of God, that can be scary. Raise your hand if you've ever experienced that. You hear God speak to you, and you're like, nah, no, don't make me talk to that guy. No, right? I don't want to step out, God. And what do, you, what do we do? We rationalize it. Let me tell you a story. This last week, I'm not going to name uh, a friend of mine, a really close friend of mine. He was taking his kids to school. And um, I think they might have been a little bit late. He has like four kids. And uh, he sees a couple uh, on the side of the road with their broken down car. Instantly, he felt like the Holy Spirit tell him two things. Stop, right? I want you to turn around. Uh, but then the Holy Spirit said these two things. I want you to pray for him, and then I want you to give him $50, so then my friend, who is, I love him, he's, he's really smart, probably the smartest guy in the room, loves Jesus, for a couple of minutes is, was trying to rationalize it. Like, I, I, I got to get to school. My kids are late, right? Totally great excuse, right? Excuse after excuse after excuse. They're going to think I'm crazy. What am I going to do with the kids? What are the teachers going to say? Finally, he said, okay, God, I'm going to listen to you. So we turned around, a lot of traffic, came to where they were at, got out, finds out that they're Christians. He starts to pray for them. They start to cry. They then start to tell him 
their story that I think they were at a family reunion and uh, they went through a really difficult time. So they're kind of telling um, this particular individual everything they're going through. Well, he then said, you know what, this is going to sound crazy, but I felt like Jesus told me to give you $50. They start to cry. He then opens up his wallet. He had two 20s. He gave him two 20s. This is crazy, guys. Two 20s, right, that's 40. And then he had a $5 bill. What is that? 45. And then he had five ones. Did I do my math right? He gave him $50. This is crazy. They start to bawl. What they then told this particular individual that they were at a family reunion and they put all their cash into little envelopes. And in one particular um, envelope, which is for their son and school supplies, there was $50. And in that envelope, there were two 20s, there was one $5 bill and $5 bills. Think about that. And they broke down because of how good and how faithful God was. All because, this all happened because this particular individual was willing to listen to the Holy Spirit. That's the kind of church we're called to be. Expecting God to speak through us even when sometimes it doesn't make sense. And here's the thing, we're not gonna live by results or productivity because sometimes those stories don't happen. Sometimes God just wants you to be faithful and obedient no matter what. For example, my wife and I were talking about this one story. God told her, it was clearly the voice of God. My wife is so sensitive to the voice of God. It was about 15 years ago to go to this person in the mall and tell them how much Jesus loved this particular individual. So she tried to rationalize it. She gave up. She gave in. She goes over to this person and says, hey, you might think I'm crazy, but uh, I'm a follower of Jesus. I just want to tell you that Jesus loves you. She's waiting for this. My wife is waiting for this big moment, right? The person looks up to her and says, I know. And my wife is like, okay, I'm never going to do that again. <laughs> right? Here's the thing. It doesn't matter what happens. Right? Our responsibility is to be faithful and to obey. It's funny. I, I would always hear messages growing up when people were like, preachers would get up and say, hey, no one will ever reject you praying for them. So just go out and pray for people. I would go out that week and I'd have at least two or three people reject offers to pray for them. I'm like, okay, is there something wrong with me? No, the point is we are called to be a faithful people to the voice of God. And as we learn to be faithful people, as we learn to, um, let's say, deconstruct our distractedness, right? And as we allow maybe the Holy Spirit to come and change our perspectives of who God is, what happens? Your, expect, your expectations begin to grow, and then as a church, as a community, we experience miracles after miracles after miracles. Now let me say this really quick as I close. If I can find my notes, I can't find my notes. Let me just say this. We are not hunters for miracles. Like, like tornado hunters, is that what we call them? Right, they go from town to town, place to place, looking for the next weather event. We are not called to be tornado hunters, miracle hunters, what are we called? We're called to pursue love. We're called to pursue Jesus. And as we pursue Jesus, what happens? Our expectations are going to grow. And then what Paul says, it's a command, our desire for the stuff that the Spirit of God does, right? Healing, miracles, working through our lives. Our desire begins to augment and begins to grow in relationship to us pursuing love. So what do, I, what do I want us to do this week? I want us to believe that God's going to do big things. 
not just on Sunday. Now, let me just say this really quick. Yeah, I get it. Like on Sundays, man, if we can't believe God to do big things on Sunday, man, we have no hope or prayer during the week. So at least we should practice having high expectations on Sunday. And then that should lead into our week, right? And into our month and into, this, into our season as we follow Jesus. I want us to be a church that believes that there's nothing too hard for Jesus. I want us to be a church filled with big faith. I want people to come into our services where they feel, like Pastor Ken talked about it, this atmospheric sense that God is present. But I also want that to happen in your place of work. Right? We are going to believe, hear me, and I know the Holy Spirit's going to test me. Just have mercy this week on me, God. Don't make it too hard, right, Mr. Grove? <laughs> oh, help me. But we are going to believe for big things this season. We're going to see miracles in bodies. We're going to see healing. We're going to see salvation. We're going to see God move in this town in unprecedented ways, and I want you to be a part of it. Can I get an amen? Amen.